We started this series last week about roots translating into fruits. And so I want to continue that series today and talk a little bit more about it. And just by way of, uh, by way of review a little bit, you know, roots are something that you don't think of much because they're underground. You don't notice them because we're always looking at the tree or the foliage or the flowers or the other things above ground. It's really easy to forget what's under there until something like this happens. Maybe wind blows a tree over. Look, can you see the little guy standing there? It's kind of hard to see, isn't it? Because you wouldn't expect this tree to be that big and the roots to be that big. I mean, he is literally standing underneath and not even, I mean, I, it's probably three times the size of that guy. Or if a stream runs out and runs over its banks and washes all the water away, then the roots are exposed and you realize there's a lot more going on underneath the surface than we think. But everything that happens above the surface is a direct relationship to what's happening under the surface. And if what's under the surface isn't healthy and not getting the nutrients, then what you're going to have above the surface isn't going to be healthy either. And we, we talked about it last week that, that the fruit is a direct relationship there. And you've got to know that, that the plant system itself, there's a lot, lot more happening than we see above ground. Plants can't even live without the roots. So we, we tied that to a section of scripture in Matthew chapter 7. And I mentioned that this portion of scripture is right in the middle of Matthew chapter 7, which is part, a big part, but it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. It follows chapter 6 where you have the Lord's Prayer. And then in Matthew chapter 7, it opens up talking about don't judge, if, unless, don't judge in an area where you're stumbling. And that's the whole, you know, you got the little speck of dust in your friend's eye and you're trying to take it out, but you have a log in your own. It's right in that section. And then he tells us, though, that we're supposed to judge certain things. So here's what he says. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. And he tells us how we can find that and how we can see it. You have to make a judgment here. In a way, you become fruit inspectors. You've got to be careful with that, but you become fruit inspectors. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and that's because of the root. And bad tree produces bad fruit. And a good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce fruit, good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. So like I said, roots determine the fruits. That's just how it is. But let me ask you a question today. Today I want to focus on this one area. What, what if the roots are diseased? I mean, what if they're damaged in some way? What if, what if the roots themselves are not healthy? Because there are times in our lives where those roots, we're supposed to be rooted in Christ, but there's times where those become unhealthy. And sadly, what's going to happen is that the root is going to affect how the fruit is. So we find a scripture right about that in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, work at living at peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. Bitterness. Bitterness. Does anybody eat roots? Anybody? You probably do and don't realize it. I mean, really, a carrot is a root, right? How many of you have ever grown your own carrots? 
Do you ever do that as a kid or with your kids? You know, those seeds are really tiny and you're trying to plant them and not get them all clumped up. And then when they grow up, you've got to thin them out a little bit. How many of you have been disappointed with the carrots that come out? I mean, they're not like in the store, right? I mean, a lot of times you're eating them and you're thinking, oh, this tastes horrible. And then especially when the kids were little, I was embarrassed. Not embarrassed, but I mean, they're like, why does this taste so bad? I'm like, I don't know. It's horrible. Let's go buy a carrot at the store. You know what a bitter root tastes like. It's one of those things, I think, the, the whole bitterness idea, it's something that's really sadly, it's easier to see in other people than in yourselves. You, you may be walking around and you may have a bitter root growing up in you and you may not notice it at first, but I guarantee you other people do because they're going to see the fruit that is born out of that bitterness and you may not have even noticed it. And there's a lot of things that play into this, but it's definitely a cause and effect relationship. In the first part of that verse we read in Hebrews, it said that we're supposed to be about peace and about holiness. And you all know, I mean, you've been in church long enough, you know how to grow in Christ and how to be holy. It takes living a consistent Christian life and and working at that relationship. But you also know that there's times where that we, we kind of have this ebb and flow. In fact, if I were to ask all of you this question, I'm not going to ask any of you to raise your hand. I want you to do this in, in your, internally, so consider it you know, just a question between you and me. But if I were to ask you, have any of you ever at any time in your life been closer to God than you are right now? What would you answer? The fact is we're never always at the top. We're always in this ebb and flow, a peak and a valley, The goal in the Christian life is to make sure that the peaks keep getting higher and the valleys keep getting higher. That's the goal because you're always going to go through an ebb and flow just just like in your marital relationship or even relationships with your friends. That's, That's the nature of human life. It's the nature of our life together. But there are certain things that we have to watch out for. And in that verse of Scripture, it mentions some of the things that we have to seriously avoid. I want, to, I want to touch on four specific areas that we've got to be very, very, very careful about. First one is making him Lord of all. I don't know if you've noticed this in life, but a lot of people are, they're cool with Jesus. You notice this? They just don't want to follow him all the way, right? Because if you follow him all the way, what are you? You're weird, right? You're, you're kind of a radical. And so they're cool with a lot of the things he said, you know, be kind to people, don't judge. We lo- people love that, right? They're great with all that. Even sometimes part, at least, of the golden rule. Remember the golden rule? Whatsoever you would, that men should do unto you, do you even so to them? Because we figure it'll come back to us. If we're doing good, people will be good to us. And it's almost like they kind of get this whole karma idea. And what they miss is, that's not the deal. The deal with him is you need to be completely submitted to him, and he needs to be Lord of all. And I wonder sometimes if it's not, not uniquely American, but as Americans, maybe we even struggle with that because, you know, we don't want kings. We don't want anybody ruling over us. And I don't know about you, but I don't like hearing that, that we have even our own royalty, whether it's in politics or media or movies. Or I just internally rebel against that. Like, no, I'm American. I get to choose what I want. You don't choose what you want in Christianity. That's not how it works. The fact is, I'm going to say this, and if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. You don't get to pick and choose. It's not a buffet. I love buffets. Anybody else? <laughs> I just love that. It's the freedom. 
I, I mean, there's, I can't remember. I mean, sometimes you go to a Chinese restaurant and, and you order and you're like, oh, it's not a buffet. I only get this one thing. And then as I'm sitting there, I'm looking at everybody else's plate and I'm like, can we just spin the whole table around and just try other? Christianity's not like that. You, you get it all or not at all. In fact, people think they're living for Christ when they aren't because they're living part of it. And I'm glad they're living part of it. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is that you need to come to a point in your life where you realize, you know what? This is the truth, and I believe it, and I need to submit to it all. It's an interesting story I came across years ago. It was, it was fascinating to me, and I, I love history, and I love specifically things that touch Christianity and history. And I know probably none of you have really studied up on Ivan the Great, right? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody even know who he was great were over? He, he actually reigned in the 14th century, or 15th century. And what he did was he was famous for unifying Russia into one nation state. Before that, like a lot of countries, they had all these warring factions. But he unified the whole thing. And, and I'm, I'm not getting into how he did it or whether he was a great guy or anything. That's not what I'm talking about. But he was so busy at doing that, he never got married. He never had an heir. And at one point in his life, his advisors came to him and said, you need to pick a wife so you can continue this great, great Ivan the Great. So he's like, well, find me somebody. So what they did is they thought, well, we need to make an alliance. If you think about where, think about where Russia is in Asia right there and then come down to the lower left there, you have Greece. And at the time, the king of Greece was powerful and had a beautiful daughter, so they arranged a marriage there. He never even met her. He just said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> then there was a little problem see the king of greece they were greek orthodox very very religious and if, if you're familiar with your church history the roman catholic church split from the greek orthodox church right around the year 1000 okay so the greek orthodox church did things a little differently they actually baptize in water they don't do the sprinkle like like the roman catholics do they baptize and what happened is the king of greece said you can marry my daughter but only if you convert to, to uh, Christianity and you become baptized. So this is just how it goes. This is how the story goes. Ivan the Great, they say he was, you know, sometimes history, they call it his story because he wrote it, you know, pretty much. But they say he was so smart that he learned the entire Greek catechism in just weeks. So I, I, true or not, I don't know. But here's what happened. So he goes to Greece for the marriage. He goes to Athens for the marriage. And he takes with him his personal guard of 500 of his elite soldiers. These are professional soldiers who traveled with him everywhere. So he gets there, and um, these soldiers were so loyal to him, they said, basically, if you're converting, we're converting. We want to be baptized too. So another problem, uh, they weren't uh, actually converted yet. So what they did is the Greek Orthodox Church assigned each of them his personal priests, 500 priests with 500 soldiers, and they ran them through the catechism real quick. And then they get ready to do the baptism. So they're in the Mediterranean Sea, if you can just picture this. They're getting ready to do the baptism, and then, oh, we got a problem. Anybody guess what it is? These are soldiers. And they were there in their full military uniform, sword and all. And they said, we can't baptize you like this. Because you, you can't be baptized as a Christian in this church and then be a man of war and killing. And so, again, big problem. But they still had to work this marriage out, so they come to the agreement, and this is what they did. Every one of those soldiers, when he was baptized, right before they put him under the water, pulls his sword out, and then as they go down in the water, 
They leave the sword out. So they were baptized up to there. So they could still be warring. Does that make sense? Don't we do the same thing? I mean, really? We're all good with being baptized. In fact, there's some things about Christianity that the secular world doesn't even realize. We were way ahead. You think about Galatians 3, 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We stand equal before the foot of the cross. Jesus loves us all. There's equality there that didn't exist in that world. Christianity led the way in that. We love that, but we don't want to submit at all. We want to leave one part out. I don't know what you're leaving out today, but we all do it. We all leave something out. The thing is, when you only follow Christ part way, you're going to always be frustrated. You're always going to find yourself failing and wonder, why can't I live this Christian life? And I would submit to you, it's because you're not fully submitted to him. You haven't fully given your life to him, so you're not enjoying the full blessings of Christ that he offers you because you're holding something back. The next thing that it talked about in, in that scripture is it said that um, that bitter root spreads. You ever notice that? Why is it so hard that it, to, to, to be good, but it's so easy to be bad? You ever notice that? I, I know when, you know when I'm around friends of mine and, you know, and, you know, I don't have as many as these friends anymore. Most of the people I work with are Christians. And, but there's times where, you know, you're around people and it's funny how words slip out or attitudes pervade. Isn't it weird? And we're getting ready to send kids to school. And as you send them to school, they're going to come home with attitudes that didn't happen at your house or words that you didn't teach them. Why is it that way that we struggle to keep ourselves morally pure? Now, obviously, I mean, the, the bitterness, the, the negativity that just spreads. I wanted to give you a little illustration. I asked a couple guys to help me with that. If you guys would come up here real quick. I've noticed this in life, that it's, it's difficult to pull people up into the Christian life. So come on up here. This is Nick. Come up, come up high. This is Luke. I intentionally picked these two guys. Can you guess why? I want you, Nick, just to try to pull Luke up the stairs. Let's see if you can do that. Just grab his hand. No, no, not like that. You don't have to get way down. Don't make it too hard. Just pull him. It's hard, isn't it? Now switch places. Just pull him down. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy. Now, obviously, Luke probably could pick Nick up. But in this case, you guys, thank you very much. The fact is, though... Anytime you're around people and you're trying to inspire them to live for Christ or you're trying to do this, that's, it's difficult. But it's so easy to be dragged down, be dragged down by the world. I mean, it's just, it's just how it is. And the bitterness is so easy to spread, whether it's through gossip or criticism or cynicism, it just happens. And then it seems almost like once someone's infected with it, it's really hard to get free of that. Have you ever noticed... Some people, maybe you can see it in somebody and they're bitter about something or angry about something. And even once it's been identified, it's almost then like they become proud of it and own it. It's weird. And, and tied right next to that, he talked about, you know, we, we're so morally challenged as human beings. I mean, sin just comes natural to us. It does. Living for Christ is difficult. Not living for him is easy. 
Uh, you've probably uh, seen those bumper stickers where you've got the one little fish swimming against the, all the other fishes. I like that. I like that illustration. Because the fact is, it's more like that than anything else. For us as Christians, we live in an entire world where the natural world environment, almost you think of it like this, that the water we swim in, the water we swim in is naturally immoral. That's why it doesn't surprise me when I hear about someone who's not a Christian failing morally. I'm like, well, yeah. But for us, it's work. Look at the the next thing it said. It talked about that sin of Esau. And I don't know about you, but there's been times, especially when I was growing up, I remember reading that story. And if you're not familiar with it, what happens is you've got Jacob and Esau. Jacob was kind of a mama's boy, and she favored him a lot. And then Esau was, he was a man's man. He was dad's son. And he would, he would go out and cook and, out, I mean, not cook, but he would go outside and hunt and fish and bring home wild game. And then, then Jacob, who was actually born second, they were twins, but he was born second. Jacob would cook at the house. The Bible literally says he would stay home with his mom and cook and do housework. Different boys. Dad favored Esau. Jacob favored, or uh, you know, his mom favored him. So in this story, what happens is Jacob's kind of a sneaky dude. And at one point, his brother comes home from a rough day hunting. I don't know if he was out all day. And think about this. He's not riding a four-wheeler hunting. I mean, it's another time. He comes home, and he's really hungry, and he's, he's thirsty, and he's needing some food. And it just so happens that Jacob had fixed something that sounded really, really good. And he says, give me some of that. And his brother says, I'll trade it. I'll trade your birthright for this. And I don't know. I've read that story and wondered... Did Esau really think it through? Obviously not. Did he think he was joking? Did he think, yeah, whatever, give me the soup and then I'm going to kick you right in the head? (laughs) I mean, what did he really think? But the fact is, the Bible says that he didn't respect his birthright enough. He didn't appreciate what he had. That he, he, he was willing to trade it for momentary pleasure. For just a little satisfaction. And, and, I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. I know what it takes to be more healthy, don't you? It's not really that complicated. I mean, how many millions of dollars have been spent and earned on on diet books and health plans? When it really comes down to this, it's calories in, calories out. There's a a professor over at K-State. I don't know if you've heard of that. He has the Twinkie diet. Have you heard of this? I mean, this is for real. What he did was, all he did is measure his calories. He knows the, the amount of calories his body burns, and what he did is he literally ate junk food, Twinkies and whatever, but limited the calories to be less than the calories his body burned, and guess what? He lost weight. That's a silly example, but we do it in our moral lives too. We do it in our Christian lives, and so often we know the price we're paying, but, but the pleasure, the enjoyment is just too enticing so the, the sin of Esau is this, that he didn't value his, his relationship with God, and in this case, his birthright enough, and he was willing to trade it for something momentary and passing. I mean, how long did it take to eat that soup that day? I mean, seriously, 10 minutes? For a lifetime of loss. We do it all the time, though. We do it in our own lives. For a Christian today, it might mean that you... You despise the things of God or you despise Christians. And maybe it's, and, and just, I apologize though if I'm, I'm offending you today, but what if, what if you see somebody and they are a passionate, sold out Christian? And, and part of you, it kind of 
tweaks you a little bit because you know you should be more like that. But it's easier to make fun of them and say, look at that crazy dude. He's talking about Jesus all the time and everybody's laughing at him. And you're despising what is good. We do it. We do it at different levels and at different measures, but we do it. Maybe for you, you're speaking irreverently about, about things that are holy. Now, believe me, I, I don't think, I'm not talking about the building being holy, and I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about real spiritual things. It's when you don't fear the Lord. Anybody else struggle with that, that phrase when you're a kid? Fear the Lord? Are we supposed to be afraid of him? It's not that. What it means is we're supposed to have a joyful, sustained awe of who he is. But if you live with a sustained awe of who God is, then you're more likely to obey him and want a deep relationship with him. But because our natural tendency is to not want that and to fight against that, it's easier to be critical and it's easier to be cynical than to have a sustained awe of him. Because then it kind of gives us a buffer zone and we don't have to take him quite so serious because we can live in a way that we want and not be, be confronted with the truths and realities of who he is. It's just what we do. <laughs> Something else about Esau, he didn't value his relationship with his father and his birthright enough to guard it. He should have been guarding it just like we should guard our relationship with God. Job said this. At one point he said, I have made a covenant with my eyes to not look after a woman so I won't sin. He made a covenant with his eyes. You know, realize Job is, we think, one of the oldest books in the Bible, if not the oldest. I only say that to say sinning with our eyes isn't, isn't a new thing. It's a human thing. And sometimes we need to make a covenant. We need to guard it that much. You need to guard your heart so that you won't be angry. And then when tough times come or when things happen that you feel like you were unfairly judged or whatever that you don't jump to conclusions because you're guarding your heart and your relationship you guard your associations and your reputation and your attitude what happens is we don't sin overnight there's a progression into sin and we we looked last week briefly at psalm one but i wanted to look at it again oh the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around sinner with sinners or join in with mockers do you see at the end there you become someone who doesn't respect the things of God anymore. You become a mocker. You've progressed into that. That's how it works. It's always, always just kind of a progression. We fool ourselves. We get lulled into complacency thinking, I can handle this, or it's not bad for me, or I can do it, or I'm just hanging out with them. It's not, I'm not like them yet. That's how it works. It's sad, too, because Proverbs gets very serious about this. And I can hear it's really quiet in here. That's good because we're getting really serious about this. There's a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. There's this section in Romans chapter 1 that speaks directly to this. It says, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, and by acknowledge, that's, that's a basic thing, but talking about respecting him and honoring him and, and fearing him. He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin. Look at all these things. Greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. Who puts gossip in with those things? God does. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud. This is a horrible list, isn't it? 
They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. Oh, my. Refuse to understand, break their promises. Heartless, have no mercy. <laughs> it's all roots. Those are all root things. I mean, that, that was quite a list, wasn't it? And some of those things we wouldn't equate. We'd say, oh, well, this isn't as bad as the other. But, but that's just doing that is us trying to make some kind of a buffer in there for us to get away with certain things. We're not totally sold out to him. We're not totally giving ourselves completely to him. It's all about roots. And what those things all lead to is a sense of bitterness that not only corrupts you, but the Bible talked there about how it would corrupt other people. So how do you avoid being bitter like that? In that verse we looked at in the beginning, work at living in peace with everyone. And work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Do you see something repeated in there? You get ready to go back to school, right? When the teacher repeats things, you're supposed to listen. Write that stuff down. What are you supposed to do? Can I hear you say it a little louder? Yeah, you're supposed to work. But God, God leads us in this Christian life and he, he prepares the way and he helps us. And, and, but then we work. You still have to do something. It's not like we're all passive in this thing and then he just does it all. It's not like we say one day, okay, God, you're the boss, I'm not, and then boom, it's over. No, we work at it because you're continually working and, and improving yourself and changing your attitudes and working on the way you live and your, your, your whole life focus. And since it's Olympic times, I thought we'd throw this in. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. Run to win. Work at this. Work at this. For it to be like this, it's work. I don't know. Is anybody here a runner? Anybody? I ran in college. Figured that was enough. <laughs> I, I knew, I've known some people who were ultra marathoners. That is an interesting breed of person, I'm just telling you right now. There was a guy we worked with at Sheffield. He was one of the, the custodial guys there, and he would run 100 milers. For him to train, he would have to do a marathon to train for the 100 miles. A marathon's 26 miles. It's only a fourth of what he would do. But this guy, they would start running at midnight, and he literally would run all the way around, around our church even sometimes. They, not around the church, but he would run up that hill, that Lakewood Hill. I mean, they're not running just all flats. I, I don't know how you do that, honestly. I, I, I just physically incapable of that and mentally and emotionally not even interested. But <laughs> the bottom line is that's more like the Christian life than the running I like to do. I mean, I like to run like from here to that speaker. <laughs> really. Most of us don't run that much. And, and the Christian life we want to live is this short little thing that we do good one day or I've been good this whole hour, right? It's a marathon, guys. It's a long arduous race that we're running and you need to run to win you need to prepare for it and work at it and keep your spiritual life in shape so that you're fit for the run and it gets tough and sometimes you're thinking this isn't worth it and it's hard and i saw this quote by christine kane and i loved it it just said sometimes when you're in a dark place you think you've been buried but actually you've been planted because God works in those times. And when you're running the race and it feels so tough, he's working in you there way more than when you're on the downhill and it's super easy. That's just how it is. It, it's a tough, tough time together. It's about, it's about the destination, but it's also about the journey. It's so easy to focus on the end and heaven and whatever, but 
But real life goes longer than that. It's kind of like the fairy tales, you know, that say they lived happily ever after. That's the fairy tale part. Because nobody lives happily ever after. You work at it every day. <laughs> Another thing you need to do is to be open to correction. Who, who likes correction? Anybody? Not one person. Because we don't. I, I, there, I don't. <laughs> who, who likes discipline? Remember we used to call, like, reading your Bible and prayer and meditation, all those things, Christian disciplines? We stopped saying that. Nobody likes discipline. I mean, if that's discipline, I don't want it, right? But you have to be open to that. And the way you're going to be corrected, you're going to be corrected hopefully by the word of God as you read it. And then one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he convicts us of sin and speaks to our minds. Scripture talks about that. Now, that's different than condemnation, which the Bible specifically says when you feel guilty for sin you've already been forgiven of. But the Holy Spirit speaks to our minds and lets us know about things we need to work on and clear up. But there's a lot of areas where correction comes to you. It might be leadership in the church or even your husband or wife or friends, but you have to be open to it. Another thing you need to do is keep your eye on the prize. Eye on the prize. Always be focused on that finish line. Yes, it's a long way off, but be focused on it all the time. Um, Again, in Hebrews in chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. How do we do that? We do it by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. I can't watch any Olympic races without thinking of this verse. I just can't. I had a friend in college. He ran the decathlon. And a few times I went to see his competitions. They'd be over two days. And I remember one time going with him to a practice. And I remember he, he was trying to run in his warm-ups. And his coach pulled him over and said, what are you doing? And he said, well, it's chilly today. He goes, well, you're training. And he, he didn't say throw off every weight. He said, get that stuff off you. It's just slowing you down. Think about it every time I see someone run. And I think about my life and the things that I need to purge and get, get out of my soul because it's slowing me down. Follow in Jesus, the eyes on the leader. It's, it's the ultimate follow the leader. We follow him at every chance. He sets the goal for us. The goal is to love God and love others. The, God, the, the goal is to know him and to tell people about him. You could, you could say, no, live, tell. It's about him. A couple other things. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. This is in that main scripture we use today. It said, the first thing it said is to work, and then it said to look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. I look at it like this. Christianity is a team sport. We don't, we don't win alone. Not only that, we're not competing against each other. This isn't one of those sports where for me to win, you have to lose. This isn't one of those sports that as I see you achieving, I'm jealous of you because we can all win. No, I'm excited for you. When I see you succeeding in the Christian life, I'm inspired to succeed as well. And we can cross the finish line together. You ever see those videos of Special Olympics and they run across the line together? It's just cool. Because they carry each other and they walk through together. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to care about each other enough and to see that those ones running with us are with us, not against us. 
I could have the worship team join me up here. I like it like, I think of it like this. It's not about competing. It's about taking as many people as possible across the finish line with you. That's what it's about. We, it's a we. Not a you or a me, it's a we. I love that. But with that in mind, think about this. For us to win together, sometimes it's not gonna be about you. Now, this could be tough for some of us. How many of you have been in church? Let me just ask this a few different ways. How many have you been in church your whole life? Quite a few of you. Obviously, some of you are, have had a little more life than others, but, but we're talking about a long time, right? How many of you have been probably um, in church five years? Let's say five. <laughs> really, that's it? How about 10? That's a lot of you. So how many sermons would you hear in a year, would you say? At least 52, right? Because come Sunday. Let's, let's just make the math easy. Let's say 50, okay? So that counts if you maybe heard an extra or you heard something on the radio or you came on a Wednesday or youth or whatever. Okay, so 50 in a year. So in 10 years, how many sermons is that? How many? You didn't know there was going to be a test today, did you? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So if somebody's new at the Christian faith... Wouldn't it make sense that you know more about it than them? And what they need for you to cross the finish line together is maybe more basic than what you need. But how many times do we come and we want what we want? Because we walk in the doors and it's about me today. And, and believe me, I know God can minister to us at all different levels. And I can't tell you how many times I preached a sermon and afterwards someone came up and they'd say, wow, when you said this, that was really powerful. It's just what I needed. And I don't tell them, but I'm looking, I'm like, I I didn't say that. I didn't. The Holy Spirit probably spoke to them about it, or maybe something that was on their mind that God just let them see, and I love when that happens. But the fact is, not every sermon is going to be right at your level, because you may be more mature than somebody else. And we have to be okay with that, because we're crossing the finish line together. Sometimes, it may be like this, it may be that you might, as a Christian, have to give up some of your rights. (laughs) Here's a funny thing in the church. The Bible says that if you want to be, um, you've got to be the servant of all. Here's the funny thing. The higher you get in your relationship with Christ, the more people you serve. Isn't that weird? Because in the world, it's the opposite. It's like the more important I am and the more in charge I am, I'm over people. But in the Christian life, we're we're under people. We, We serve more. That's how it works. So the more mature you are, that means that there's times where you may need to lay down your rights because Paul, Paul said it like this because in their environment there were times where certain younger Christians were being offended about certain things and they, in, this, in the one case he's talking about in scripture he's talking about where there would have been meat offered to an idol and then it would be sold for less money in the market and some people who would buy that meat because they knew idols were meaningless didn't change the meat but then a younger Christian less mature would have a problem with that they say, I can't, I can't eat that. It was offered to an idol. So what do you do? You give them a little speech about, <laughs> or do you lay down your rights and say, let's cross the finish line together because you know they're going to grow in Christ and it'll be okay. We can work this out. We can do it together. One, one last thought on that. You might also have to put up and love Christians that aren't like you or different than you. That's okay too because life is messy and relationships are messy and we're going we're to do things and offend people and you're going to need to ask for forgiveness and you're going to need to forgive and get along and 
you probably heard this before, but there's no perfect church because as soon as you walk in, there's people and people sin and there's no perfection. It's church. I always chuckle when somebody says, oh, I can't stand Christian Christianity in church because there's hypocrites there. But I just laugh because we're all hypocrites. Everywhere you go, your office, there's hypocrites. I mean, there's, that's human nature. It's not a Christian thing. It's a human thing. So let me bring this to a close and we co- concentrate on this for a minute. The roots determine the fruits. Anybody here have a bitter root growing up a little bit? Maybe there's been an area of life you've compromised on a little and as we've been talking here, maybe the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your mind and you're thinking, yeah, I can see that happening. Some of you may be in the, in the situation where you don't necessarily see it, but someone else God might put someone on your heart and mind that you love and care about and you have a relationship with and you might be able to confront them and talk to them about it. It's a hard thing. We don't like doing that. I don't like doing that. But we need to because we're crossing the finish line together. Maybe some of you are like Ivan the Great or his soldiers and you're baptized into Christ just not all the way. Maybe you're holding something out. Maybe it's part of your marriage or your TV viewing or internet or relationships or an attitude or your wallet or you're just not totally in. You're cool with him and everything, but not all the way. Let me do this. I'm going to ask you to shut your eyes for a second. I do this nearly every week, and I do it because it gives you a sense of privacy in a room full of people. And I do it because I want to ask you a question, and I want you just to be alone really in the room with the sound of my voice and really you and God. And I want to know and this is just for a matter of prayer I'm not going to call you out or say your name or anything but I'm wondering as we've been talking today if anybody here you have felt that root of bitterness starting to grow up at all anybody at all and you know that right now today you need to clear that up between you and God just raise your hand for a second I, I see the hand I see that one too thank you for your honesty let me ask the next question with your eyes still closed If you were one of those soldiers, what would be sticking out of the water right now? What would it be? What would it be that you have not completely given over to him? I mean, you're you're for him. You just, you realize there's a couple things you've kind of held back. And you you need to put those under the water today. You need to give those to him. Does anybody have something like that at all? Just raise your hand real quick. Appreciate your honesty in that. I'm going to ask you if you would all stand for just a moment. And I'm going to have the worship team play through one of the choruses we sang today. And as they do, I'm going to invite our, our pastors and wives and board and wives, prayer team wives, if you would come down and pray with people. If you would like prayer for any of those things that you raised your hand for, we'd be happy to pray for you. It could be anything, though. Yeah, come on down, leaders, come on down. It could be anything. You may need healing in a certain area of your life physical healing or maybe something you just want someone to pray with you about you don't have to disclose every detail you just want someone to pray with you and if that's you I invite you to come down in a moment when the when the uh, worship team plays the last thing I want to do is this I want to just ask maybe you've been sitting here today and you're actually not a Christian and you came to church and maybe you had been before or maybe not at all and as we're getting ready to take communion, you're thinking, oh, no, I probably shouldn't do this. Or maybe you were thinking as we talked today that you need to make 
that decision to follow Christ, what I'm going to do is invite you to come down as well and talk to one of these people, and they will pray with you for that too. So if you guys would lead us.